would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. We're looking at the final chapter, 2 Samuel 24. If you're looking for it in the red Bibles, the page numbers in your bulletins. As you're turning there, let me just give you a quick heads up about what's coming in the coming weeks and months. Uh, we'll be finishing our study in 2 Samuel today. The next couple of Sundays, we're going to do what I like to call one-off sermons. Uh, we're going to have a couple sermons on a couple of the different psalms. And then as we get into later June, we're actually going to start our summer series, which will be going through the Lord's Prayer. We'll be looking at all of the petitions of the Lord's Prayer. As we say it every week, we need to be reminded of what it is we're actually saying and praying. Uh, and so we'll be doing that throughout the summer. As we get into the fall and September, we'll begin a new summer, uh, new uh, fall series that will take us into the spring. We're going to be looking at the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John together. So that's kind of where we're going. That's the trajectory uh, over the next couple of weeks and months. But today, we have the great blessing of coming to the end of our study in 2nd Samuel, looking at chapter 24. So I'd invite you to look there as I read to you, beginning in verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aror and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan. And from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre. And to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites. And they went out to the Negeb of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. 
And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aaron Una, the Jebusite. Then David said, David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite. So David went up to, at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arauna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arauna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arauna said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arauna said to David, let my Lord, the king, take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arauna gives to the king. And Arauna said to the king, may the Lord, your God, accept you. But the king said to Arauna, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the, so the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. Let's pray together. Father, we come to this portion of your word and we are so thankful that you've given it to us. We pray that the Holy Spirit would be at work here in this in these very moments and that you would help us to see what we want us to see from this portion of your word. Help us to understand what we need to understand. Help us to believe what we need to believe and help us to see Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. August 24th, 1662, 2,500 English Puritan pastors preached their last sermon to their churches. Charles II had just been restored to the throne in England, and when he was restored, he imposed a new law on the land called the Act of Uniformity, and all ministers in the country were required to assent to agree with the act of uniformity. And basically what it said was that all of the churches in the land had to follow the Church of England's Book of Common Prayer along with all of its rituals and all of its ceremonies. Any who would, would refuse to do that were going to be banned by law from preaching in any church or holding any office in the nation. 2,500 pastors... Uh, called nonconformists, could not subscribe to that law. And so they preached their last sermon to their churches on August the 24th. One of the men who preached his last sermon that day was a man named Edward Calamy. 
Calamy had actually been a supporter of Charles II and had actually wanted him to be restored to the throne. And so when the act of conformity was being imposed, he tried to speak to Charles and to plead for religious tolerance. His appeal was rejected and Calamy joined the other non-conforming pastors and preached their last sermon to their churches rather than compromising on what they believed were biblical principles. Now it's interesting. What would you choose as your last scripture passage to preach on a day like that? Calamy, Calamy chose 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 14. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. Calamy used that text to argue that what the churches in England were experiencing was God's judgment because of their indifference to the gospel and because of the lack of faithful preaching of the word of God. And he called on the people to fall into the hand of the Lord and to put their hope in his mercy rather than falling into the hand of man. Verse 14, in many ways, is a summary statement of all that we've been seeing in 2 Samuel. That God's people are called to fall into the hand of the Lord, not to men, and to trust and to cling to his mercy and his grace. And we've seen both what happens when David and God's people do that, and then when they fail to do that. But here's the question as we come to the final chapter of this book. What does it look like for God's people to fall into the hand of the Lord? What does that look like? And I think we can see several things here in the chapter. A picture of what it looks like for God's people to fall into the hand of the Lord. We'll see three things. First, it means to trust in the sovereign will of the Lord. Secondly, it means that when we sin, we must do the right thing. And then thirdly, that we need to believe in the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in that truth. So, first of all, let's look at one aspect of what it means to fall into the hand of the Lord. It is to trust in the sovereign will of the Lord. We need to deal with a perplexing and difficult uh, verse in this text. It's verse one. Beginning of verse one says that again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. We've seen that happen over and over again throughout second Samuel. But here we're not told why we're just told that the Lord was angry with Israel. Some think that perhaps it was because of the attempted coup by Absalom and the people that we never really hear about them being punished for. Perhaps that's what. Uh, the Lord was angry about and why he was coming to them to bring judgment. But we aren't told what it was. The people must have done something against their covenant relationship with the Lord. But then we come to the difficult part of the verse, and that's verse the end of verse one. It says, and he, that's the Lord, incited David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. You see the challenge of that verse. Here we have God angry with his people. And we read that God incited David to go and number the people to take a census. And then he holds David accountable and guilty for doing what the Lord told him to do. It seems 
unfair at best, if not making God to be some sort of a monster. The people had done something wrong or they had failed to do something right. The Lord was angry with them. Judgment was coming. And the Lord incited David to take this census and then held David guilty. And because of that sin, judgment came on the people. So how do we deal with this? How do we deal with this difficult and challenging, perhaps even perplexing verse? Well, we do the same thing that we do any time that we come to a difficult passage that's hard to understand in the Bible. We look for other passages in the scripture that are more clear, that help us to understand how we should understand this passage. So we can think of a passage like 1 Peter 1 that we read earlier in our service, where Peter, quoting from Leviticus, tells us that God is holy. There is no wrong in Him. There is no unrighteousness in Him. He is holy, holy, holy. He is perfectly holy. Or we could think of James chapter 1 where James says, Let no one when he is tempted say, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth dead. God doesn't tempt anyone, we're told. Or we could look at the parallel passage to 2 Samuel 24, which is 1 Chronicles 21. And there the chronicler tells us that it was Satan himself that caused David to sin. We could even go to our own Westminster Confession of Faith chapter on God's eternal decrees. It's a chapter that is helping uh, helping us to understand a summary of what the Bible teaches about God's eternal decrees. And this is what it says. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass yet so as thereby neither God is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or counting of second causes taken away, but rather established. What we have here in verse 1 is a picture of a sovereign God accomplishing his perfect and holy will of disciplining his people, allowing Satan to incite David to sin and then using David's sin as a way of judging Israel. Here, I think we start to get an understanding of what it means to fall into the hand of the Lord. It means that we must trust the perfect, holy, sovereign will of the Lord. God isn't obligated to explain himself to us. He is God and we are not. He is the creator and we are the creation. And there is mystery there are things that we will never fully understand about the Lord God Almighty in this life. But here's what we do know. He is holy. He is just. He is righteous. He is good. He is merciful. And He is completely worthy of our belief and trust. Even when we don't fully understand. Even when there are things in our life that seem that they are unfair. We are to fall into his hands and to trust him and to trust in his sovereign will. So before we move on, I'll just ask you, do you? Do you trust the Lord in good times and in difficult times? Do you trust the Lord in the midst of trials and the hard things in life? 
Do you trust Him when there are things going on that you don't understand what He is doing? Will you trust Him and know that He is at work accomplishing His sovereign and good will and that is for your good? Part of what it means to fall into the hands of the Lord is to trust His sovereign will. A second aspect of falling into the hands of the Lord is to do the right thing when we sin. Beginning in verse 2 down through verse 9, we read about the sin of David unfolding. I want you to notice David calls Joab, the commander of his army, to go and number the people to take a census. Now, if you've been with us through our study, or if you know 2 Samuel, you know that we've seen Joab a number of times. And this is not a wilting flower of a man. This is a man who speaks his mind and who is very comfortable going his own direction, choosing what he thinks is right and doing it. And so it's interesting that it's Joab that protests against David sending Joab out to count. He says, why are you delighting in doing this, David? Even Joab knew that there was something not right. So what was the problem with taking a census? Was it wrong? Were they never supposed to take accounting of the people? Well, that's not true because in the Bible itself, in the book of Exodus, they're given specific instructions about how to do a census. So just taking a census, counting the people wasn't wrong. The problem was likely in David's motivation and in the method that he used in doing it. What was his motivation? Well, we're not told specifically here in the text, but think about this with me for a moment. This was almost certainly a military census. That's why Joab and the commanders of the army were called to carry it out. This was a, this was a counting of the military, a, 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 a census to determine how big and strong the military of Israel was. That's why Joab was put in charge of doing it. And we know from the parallel passage in Chronicles that when this census was taken, Israel had had a number of military successes. They had gone to battle and they had won. And now there was a general sense of peace in the land. And we also know that often God would send Israel into battle with an inferior army because he was trying to prove a point. You rely on me, not on the strength of the military. So why did David want to take this count of the troops? It almost certainly had to do with pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency that was driving his motivation. David was saying, let's take a count. Let's see how strong and powerful we are. And then let's rest in that security. That's the wrong motivation. But David also went about it the wrong way. Exodus chapter 30 gave specific steps that had to be taken when you took a census. And one of those steps was a requirement that when a census was taken, each Israelite who was counted was required to give a half shekel tax. It was called a ransom. It was a picture that God gave to the people of the fact that they needed to be ransomed. They needed to be atoned for. They needed to be rescued. And David failed to collect this atonement tax. He failed to take the opportunity to teach and to remind the people about God's grace. And it is interesting that if you read Exodus 30 and the instructions about a census, it threatens that if you don't take the tax, a plague will come on the people. This was David's sin. 
in his motivation and in his method. But I want you to notice what happens once the census is taken and the numbers are brought to David's attention. The census took a long time. It took over nine months for them to actually do it. We're not given any indication that David's heart uh, softened or that he changed his mind in wanting to get the census until he got the results. And then we see verse 9. Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king in Israel. There were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him. After he had numbered the people. That's all the detail we're given. We're not told how that happened. We're just told that David got the results of the census. And that his heart struck him. But we know the rest of the Bible. We know how God is at work. And we know what was happening here. It was the Holy Spirit that was working on David's heart. And bringing him to a conviction of what he had done. And so how did David respond once his heart was struck? We read at the end of verse 10, David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. What is this a picture of? What is David doing here at the end of verse 10? This is a man who is displaying repentance. He had been convicted of his wrongdoing and he prayed to the Lord and confessed his sin against the Lord. And then he asked the Lord to forgive him and to take away his sin. And notice it's not just repentance that he's showing us. He's also showing us an acceptance of the consequences of his sin. We see that in verses 11 through 14. And as we get into this, we begin to see the mercy of God. For we read that the Lord sent the prophet Gad to David. This is not the first time that a prophet has been sent to David. We've seen Nathan being sent to David, but this is Gad. And I want you to understand that this was a part of God's grace. Gad was a longtime friend of David. He had been with David even when Saul was chasing David in the wilderness. Gad had been with him. And so God, in his mercy, sends a longtime friend of David. But as Gad comes, we see that he comes with hard news. Yes, there was forgiveness for the sin that David had committed against the Lord, but there still would be consequences. But even as we get the consequences, we see God's mercy. He allows David to choose which of the consequences it would be. Three years of famine, three months of running from his enemies, or three days of a plague on the nation. And that's where we get David's response in verse 14. David says, let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great. In other words, I will trust the Lord and accept whatever the consequences, whatever discipline that the Lord thinks is best. And the discipline was harsh. An angel of death was sent to inflict a plague on the nation of Israel. And all around the nation, that plague was unleashed as the angel went from one place to another. And we're told that 70,000 men died. And notice, that's all before the angel got to the city of Jerusalem. Can you imagine the destruction and death that would have happened? But again, we see God's mercy. As the angel neared the city of Jerusalem, the Lord stopped the angel. That's enough, he said. We're going to come to this in just a second, but I want you to notice here, we're actually told where the angel stopped. He stopped at the threshing floor of this man named Arauna, a Gentile, a Jebusite. 
Now, before we move on, let's stop and reflect on how David is showing us here another aspect of what it means to fall into the hands of the Lord. The Lord had brought David to a conviction of his sin. And then David gives us a picture of doing the right thing. He prayed to the Lord and he confessed his sin and he asked for forgiveness from the only one who could give it to him. And then he accepted the consequences for his wrongdoing. This is a picture of what it looks like to fall in the hands of the Lord. It reminds us of the importance of being people of repentance. Now, certainly that's true for those who have never put their faith in Christ. Called to repent and turn to the Lord for the first time and to put their faith in the Lord and to believe and to confess their sins and to ask for the Lord to forgive them. But this is true for Christians as well. This was David doing this. This was a man after God's own heart. This was one of God's people. And it reminds us, as Martin Luther said, that all of life is to be repentance. We ought to pray on a regular basis that the Lord would bring us to a conviction of our sin. That the Lord would bring our hearts and strike our hearts in such a way that we would be convicted of our sin. That we would confess our sins to the Lord and ask Him to forgive us and turn away from our sin and turn back to Him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, being in unrepentant sin hinders our relationship with the Lord. It can keep us from enjoying His blessings. We need to fall into His hands. We need to trust Him. Trust that He is a God who has forgiveness for those who confess it. Trust Him that even if there are consequences for our sins, they are things from Him and so they will ultimately be for our good. So we ought to accept them and learn from them. Now, part of what's going to help us to be able to do that better is to look at the last part of this passage and to see the picture of Jesus that we're given. And it's not just a picture of Jesus in a general way. This is a picture of Jesus who would come and bring the ultimate atoning sacrifice for our sins. You can see that in several different ways as the end of this chapter gives us this incredible picture of the greater king of Israel to come, the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. One way you can see that is back in verse 17. David, as he sees the angel of death wrecking havoc on the nation, we read in verse 17, David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and he said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. What we're seeing here is David acting as an intercessor, as a mediator between the Lord and the people. David says, I've sinned. I've done wickedly. But these, your people, the sheep, they haven't done anything. Spare them. Take it out on me and my descendants, David says. And as David functions this way, he's giving us a picture of one of his descendants. The, the very work that Jesus would come and do, although in an imperfect picture. Jesus would come and offer himself to suffer and die on behalf of his people. But there was a difference because where David was actually guilty of a sin and he would have rightly and justly been punished, Jesus Christ was not justly punished. He never sinned. Jesus didn't sin himself. He lived a life of perfect love and obedience to his father. And where the Lord didn't give David what he asked for, but deserved, 
Jesus became the ultimate intercessor and mediator between God and us. The one without sin was put on the cross and he died the atoning death for our sins that was needed. The wrath of God and the judgment for our sin was poured out on Christ so that God's people would never have to experience it. Be spared of it. We get another picture of Christ here in verse 18 and following. It's this altar that was very strategically placed. And notice here in the text we're told that the Lord sent Gad back to David. This time there were instructions to build an altar to the Lord on the spot where the angel stopped. And so we're told that David went to uh, the, the land of Arauna. And he tried to buy the land so that he could build an altar to the Lord. And Arauna, very interestingly, a Gentile, not part of God's people, offered to give David the land and tools and even animals that could be sacrificed for free. But David wouldn't take it. He said it needed to cost him something. And so David bought the threshing floor and he built an, the altar there. Now, here's what I want you to see. This is, this is such an amazing, uh, amazing thing that's happening here with the building of this altar. It's not a coincidence where the angel of death was stopped. It was not a coincidence that God wanted the altar to be built on that spot. We're told in the parallel passage in Chronicles that the place where the altar was placed would end up being where the temple would be that Solomon would build, on Mount Moriah. That's not the first time we've heard Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah was the location where Isaac was going to be sacrificed on the altar by his father. And yet we read in Genesis that the hand was stayed and the knife did not come down to sacrifice the son. And yet an animal was given to sacrifice. It's that same location that the temple where the altar where animals will be sacrificed was going to be placed. That's the place where God says this is where the altar will be built that will help you and enable you to avert this plague. You see this picture that the Lord is giving us on the spot where God spared Isaac by providing the sacrificial animal to die in its place. The very spot where the temple will be built. It's the place where David was to build this altar. It's also very likely very close to the place that Jesus would eventually be crucified on a hill called Calvary. The writer of 2 Samuel is ending his book through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, giving us a picture of the ultimate grace and mercy that would come to us through the atoning work of our Savior. But there is another aspect of seeing Jesus here, and it is the sacrifice that is made itself. You see that in verses 22 through 25. The Lord had pushed pause on the plague, we read at the end of verse 21. But David says that something else had to be done in order for the plague to be final and complete and over. A sacrifice had to be made. And so Arauna sold David oxen to use for the sacrifice on the altar, as well as a yoke that could be used for the wood for the fire. How appropriate it was that these oxen were chosen to be the sacrifice. Oxen lived their life, their whole lives, in service to men. And, and then they were dying as a payment for sin. And the oxen were carrying the, the, the source of their being a sacrifice, their own wood. They were carrying it to their deaths. 
It reminds us of our Savior who lived his life in service to mankind, who carried his own cross to Calvary and then gave his life as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people. God looked on the sacrifice of these oxen and he spared the people of Israel, just like God looks on Christ's death on the cross and spares his people from their sins eternally. Here's the last thing of what it means to fall into the hands of the Lord. It is to believe in the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, that our God is merciful and gracious to all who would call on him. We never have to doubt that truth. It is his very nature. It is part of his character. God's grace to us in the gospel is not the exception. That is the rule. It's God's way. It's God's promise. Dr. Ralph Davis tells a remarkable true story in his commentary on this chapter of 2 Samuel. August 16, 1996, a very scary situation unfolded at the Brookfield Zoo just outside of Chicago. A family with a little boy were at the zoo that day and they were looking at the gorilla exhibit and the three-year-old little boy got away from the family, scaled the wall, got over the top and fell 24 feet down into the exhibit with the gorillas. He fell, he broke his hand, he had a gash on his face and he was knocked unconscious. Can you imagine if that was your child? Can you imagine if you were one of the onlookers? There was hysteria. Nobody could do anything in that moment. They just saw the child there helpless at the bottom of the cage. But then it got worse. They watched as an eight-year-old female gorilla named Binti started to make her way toward the, the child laying motionless in the cage. They could do nothing. They watched as Binti came over to the child and with her own gorilla child on her back, she bent down and picked up the boy and cradled him in her arms. And then she walked the boy over to the door that went out of the cage and placed him down. And when the zookeepers came in, she backed away from the child, allowing the zookeepers to safely rescue the child. He was taken to the hospital and he recovered completely. And that's an amazing story. It surprises us. Because we know that that's not the way it could have ended. We know that the nature, the character of the gorilla isn't necessarily to be compassionate and kind and to understand what's happening in such a way that they could actually get the child the help that it needs. Now, yes, we sometimes hear stories like that that happen with animals doing some remarkable things. But I would suggest to you that none of us trust that that's their nature so much that we would put our own child in the gorilla cage. But brothers and sisters in Christ, sometimes that's how we treat the Lord. We don't really think that his nature is mercy and grace. We don't really believe and trust that God, when he says that he is a God of grace, that that's really who he is, that that's really his nature. We think of it as an exception to his character. But we are called as God's people to believe in the atoning work of Jesus Christ 
on the cross. To believe that God is a God of abundant grace and mercy. It's not the exception. It is the very essence of who he is. And so we are called to believe the gospel and to put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, whether for the first time or once again, and to trust what he says, that his grace is sufficient to cover all of our sins. That we are accepted and loved and delighted in as those who are united by faith to Jesus, who have the atoning death of Jesus put to our accounts. And then, just like Peter's therefore, we must let that truth of God's mercy and grace to us cause us to fall into the hands of the Lord and to trust Him and to obey Him. To let God's grace empower us to say no to our sin and to say yes to righteousness, that we would turn away from what is wrong and lean against it and instead follow God's word and grow in Christ likeness. So let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great. And let us do that by trusting in his perfect good and sovereign will, by doing what is right when we sin. And in truly believing and trusting in the atoning work of our Savior and His grace to us in the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your servant David. And although he lived so long ago in a context that seems so foreign to us in many ways, we're thankful for the complicated man that he was. We can relate. We can relate as your people, even as we see him conflicted, doing that which is wrong, and yet responding to the work of the Holy Spirit, confessing his sin, turning to you, believing in the grace of the gospel. And so, Father, help us to do that as well. Help us to truly trust you and to fall into your hand. May that be truly a blessing for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.